0: Welcome to Whisking It All with your host, Angela Esposito, co founder of Whisk.ai, a food and beverage intelligence platform. We're going to be interviewing hospitality professionals around the world to really understand how they do what they do. From chefs to owners, mixologists to bar managers, you name it, we want to provide you guys with a ton of value, anything hospitality. Welcome to another episode of Whisking It All. We're here today with Drew Cesario from NorCal Cannabis, who's the VP of Marketing and Sales. Drew, thanks for being here. Great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. One of the reasons I was excited to really have you on the show was you're in the cannabis space, but for the longest time you've been in the beverages, the hospitality space. And so I wanted to go through your journey of, you've worked at just the highlights, some companies from the wine group to Southern Wine and Spirits, to Absolute, and and we'll go through all that. But Cardi, you have quite the amount of experience when it comes to beverage. And so I definitely wanted to highlight that and talk about that transition to the cannabis space. I appreciate you being here. And one of the places we generally to start is just the early days, I should say. When did you first get into you know hospitality? Or the beverage industry?
1: Yeah. I I got to really move into the beverage industry because I saw family inside of it and a lot of friends inside of it that were able to find that niche that was like rewarding right out of college. Took a job where I was doing a marketing strategy for Target National Geographic inside of an office, absolutely hating it and assuming that everyone hated their jobs. So after three long years, like convinced to move into beverage and and got a rollover at the wine group, which a mentor of mine really helped me acquire and it took some time to get, but it was really exciting. I mean, I got to work with brands like Franzia and Cupcake and that value segment <laughs> that allowed me to learn the fundamentals. And I got to do that across New York Metro and learn the distributor side with some of wine and spirits. And then certainly on the supplier side, since they're the second largest wine supplier.
0: Wow. And so when you first started, what got you interested to switch from, like you said, National Geographic or working on that side of things to switching to the beverage world, right? What got you into that first job into the wine group?
1: Yeah. Who doesn't like to drink? It, it was a little bit of that. I, I think there was a little bit of pragmatism around spirits and wine as a whole Are is a steady industry. It's been around for a few centuries with the exception of course of prohibition. But I, I think There's a lot of romance behind it. I think that there's a lot of romance between both the brewery side with beer and the wine side, bitter culturalists. And I think just having a relationship with those spirits was really exciting for me to get back to a little bit of agrarian roots in, in storytelling versus this standard day-to-day job that I think a lot of people right out of college are facing, which is like go into a cubicle, burn 30 years, come out, and hopefully be happy with the money you make.
0: Putting that happiness towards the future, that whole idea of one day, one day I'll be happy, and then 30 years of it, your life flies by. So I'm super curious. So tell me a bit about the Wine Group. So you were at the Wine Group. was your first job. Maybe the first question I have is, how did you go about getting a mentor? One of the things that we often talk about on this podcast is the importance of learning from your own mistakes, but also learning from other people's mistakes and that that kind of importance of of finding a mentor. So how did you go about finding your your mentor in the beverage space?
1: I was religiously curious and like engaging people that were successful there. Both, I was lucky enough, let me take a step back. I was lucky enough where my uncle, Luis Cesario, was able to bring me in and he took a chance on me. And that gave me a giant foundation to stand on and he gave me day-to-day advice for the first year nearly on like how to navigate the distributor supplier relationship but from there i was able to make other relationships certainly inside the distributor and and other people within the company that could help me navigate the role itself and I, i think that it's just important i think a lot of people are more i think worried about asking for help then realizing like people are really excited about helping i set up for mentor opportunities actually a lot now and I, I think i didn't cultivate as much as i could have to be a mentee and I, I think people just seem like these people don't have time for me and they've got this entire story in their head and i think more often than not people are really excited to share what they know people always like talking about what they know <laughs> and talking about themselves but i think people overall especially in this industry hospitality as a whole are givers like they want to share and help people navigate, especially how dynamic the space is. Let alone this year itself. I think a lot of people don't necessarily totally have the answers, but they can tell you like what didn't work for them. And at the end of the year, I would buy these look wall wine keys. And I'd write out notes and I would say thank you for the feedback. And it cost me per person maybe 20 bucks, but it, it went a long way with them showing gratitude and appreciation that I really appreciated their like time and attention. And I think that like converted people to, Hey, I'll pick up the phone when this guy calls.
0: That's cool. That's interesting. Because I think about it even in my world, like I'm in the tech world, of hospitality, but tech. And, and same thing, you'd be surprised. And then I could totally relate how many people are willing to help, as long as you're willing to put in the time. You can't be lazy, but I think people can feel when you're genuine, when you wanna learn, and when you're coming from that angle, I think people are really willing to help and share their knowledge. That's it's awesome. And so tell me before we move on. All right. So you were at the wine group. Tell me a bit about what specifically you were doing at the wine group. And I'd love to hear about some maybe learnings you had during your time there before before moving
1: on. Sure. it was it's been a little while since I talked to the wine group, but I first of all they put me on a training program because I didn't know anything about beverage. And I got to travel around to Rochester, Albany, like a lot of different a lot of different areas and states that I was just physically moving, rotating boxes of Franzia. So like Franzia comes in a five pack. It's usually a five liters, which is 25 liters of wine in a box. And it has an expiration date, which is a lot of their competitors don't have an expiration date. And so I would physically go into the basements of a lot of these huge retailers across the state and other states and like physically... Unstack stuff and then move out and credit them on everything that expired. It was a lot of that for the first like few months. I remember like being on the road and finding the romance of traveling for work and then that quickly dying after living in a suitcase for two months and not like waking up and not knowing where I was. My girlfriend had to send me flowers because it was miserable. But like from there, when I came back to New York, and was able to add a little value because I knew a little bit more about the role and being able to touch a lot of different people along the way. I was really engaging, trying to get cupcake wine, which was the fastest wine at the time, to a million cases like in restaurants, bars, clubs, hotels. So I was able to like go to strip clubs and sell a cupcake prosecco because it was a really great price for their comp bottle. And I was like buying little ways to make sure that it was relevant in these like pockets. So I, I leaned a lot on my distributor partners and take them out for dinners and tell them like, hey, I'm reliable. If you set me up with an account, I'll follow through. And like we were referencing earlier, like this whole industry is stacked on relationships and being reliable. I had to prove to them for one, I'll show up. I'll add value and I'll be reliable for the long haul and you can count on me. And after I was able to like kind of show them and demonstrate that, then they allowed me to open up other accounts for them. And I, I was doing off premise as well. So I like to think of myself as like a kind of an intentionally lazy person. So I we had these three liter bags in the box wines that we were like really trying to get off the ground. And I would give them to retailers and give them like mini tasting cups. And I would just comp them as many of those three of their back of the box ones so that at the counter at checkout, they could just try wine and then if they liked it, they'd go buy it. So it's like in-store tastings are really important. They're definitely the bedrock of getting new brands off the ground. They're a miserable experience, but they're really important.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So, and I was always curious, how does that work? I was spending time in Toronto, obviously originally I'm from Montreal. So both in Quebec, the province and Ontario, it's, it's all privatized. So I guess you got to make that relationship and then you can sample. How does sampling, I was always curious, work in the States because most of these liquor stores are privately owned. How does that process work when you want to get into the store is it like a one off or is or is there like a, a hierarchy you have to go through?
1: It depends. You mean for the hierarchy of how many tastings you need to do or like how to get yeah, into yeah, I get, to do the tastings? How to get into it?
0: Yeah. How do you like you want to sample a new wine? What's what does that process look like?
1: It's really it's really generating pull through. So the retailer wants it as much as you want it, right? Like they're for the most part, especially when it comes to new wine, even if it's part of a bigger group like the wine group, they're going to ask you to do it. And you might actually, of course, like offer to do it, but you're going to need to schedule that out. Some of the higher end wine shops are going to have a schedule for months out because a lot of volume pulls through there. And they've got clientele that are willing to pull the trigger depending on what the tastings are. It's like the tastings at Costco. If they didn't work, no one would be doing them right they work and so it's a good way to like get people to taste your product and it's a good way for people to like actually engage with it when it's now label
0: no that makes sense and i guess honestly since this was like you know a while back like i could totally see that i guess i wonder how do you go about competing right like when there's so many different skews and companies of wine. How do you go about competing for that tasting, right? Because I could see how the store would want to do the tasting, but how do you get your product to be the one they want to taste versus the hundreds of others kind of thing?
1: It's a good question. To begin with, you've got to do the storytelling up front. Like What sets you apart? There's an origin story of everything, even if it's New Zealand Sauvignon Blocks on fire. And so we opened up, we decided to have two more New Zealand Sauvignon Blocks, which was definitely the case in New York at that time. There's a 1,000 New Zealand-style blocks on, on everyone's menu, uh, especially at liquor stores. But I think building a rapport with the retailer themselves, bringing them out, knowing, being curious about who they are, like finding ways to like get them outside of the store if they're really difficult important store. Get them outside of the store, take them to a ball game, take them to dinner, learn a little bit about them, what sets them apart, what are they interested in? What wines actually did they like? I would go as far as like buying other people's wines and giving it to them to make sure that like I could get preferential treatment on that that calendar schedule and and then when i show up like i would always do the tasting i would never farm it out and i would be like ready and engaged to do it they want to make sure that their customers that are walking through are happy with the experience itself and if you're going to stand there on your cell phone like behind a booth they're never going to bring you back it doesn't matter how like engaging you are with them like it's all about their customers and so you've got to make sure that you do it or somebody on your team does it that can do the storytelling. Don't farm it out to a beautiful young girl who typically is the role for this, but hasn't been trained on the product. I'm not saying that it can't be done, but a lot of times people don't invest in training and developing these people because they're hourly one or two gig employees. So if you are going to do that, invest in the storytelling, make sure that they can reiterate it back.
0: That makes total sense. And then you were there at the wine group, kind of got your feet wet, started learning about the beverage industry, traveling, all that kind of stuff. So what did that transition look like to then go to Southern Wine and Spirits, which is one of the biggest, if not the biggest distributor in the States. So how did that transition happen? And then tell me a bit about your role there.
1: So what's interesting about the wine group and Gallo is that they actually want you to cut your teeth on the streets with them. Then you'll go into the distributor as a foot soldier salesman, saleswoman for two years, and then come back and then do a state management role, usually in like a secondary state or a tertiary state. And so I was able to ride that path into Southern Wine and Spirits. I didn't come back because I didn't have opportunities that currently fit what I was looking for, but it was great moving into southern wine spirits on premise in manhattan selling wine and it was an exciting time to sell wine in manhattan it's nearly with the exception of 2020 like always an exciting time to sell wine in manhattan you get to learn a lot there's a lot of like boutique suppliers that you can partner with that you don't compete with like Neo, that allows you to broaden your wine knowledge and it's really encouraged to go out there and get your csw your css your wsat And so you can speak the language. And so I I was able to work there, Made sure that I invested in developing my wine knowledge and was able to, again, build relationships on premise with those.
0: Right. And for people who don't know, can you just give them an idea of the scale of of Southern Wine and Spirits? Because I'm always amazed when I realize how big they are. So I don't know, maybe if you could point to some numbers in terms of size or number of employees or number of reps, but like it's it's quite a a fascinating company in in terms of the, the beverage space.
1: Yeah, they're... They're not in every state, but they're in every state that matters. And that might offend some people, but it's just true. Yeah, they're a beast of a company. And there's certainly pros and cons to that. But Southern One Spirits is the dominant force in the distribution side of the country. And I would say, I guess to put it into numbers, there's no way that they don't have 20,000 employees. They're doing over a billion dollars or a couple billion dollars in New York alone when I was there. They're the biggest company that you don't know of if you don't. No, the beverage industry. They're, they are the choke exactly. point of the three-tier system. Yeah.
0: yeah. I, I, on that note, actually, I think a lot of people don't know about the three-tier system that are not in the industry. So can you paint the picture for people to understand how the how the, the beverage world works?
1: Yeah. After Prohibition, the series of the Volstead Acts, it was required by Congress to make sure that the corruption that was really feeding the underground booze industry at that time would be broken up. So you had suppliers and breweries, distilleries, and wineries could not own distributors. And then those distributors of course could not own retail. Now, if you go to China or Hong Kong or some other places, like you'll see that, you know, there might be a martel Bar or a Diageo bar, like that are owned by these conglomerates and able to represent their products in the same way that you would see, like an, an Adidas outlet. It's antiquated. It's interesting. It adds to some competition, and in some cases. When you have a lot of consolidation over decades, it can you know, certainly stifle competition as well.
0: And so like at, at the top, right, you got your producers, or let's say, like you said, Diageo, Bacardi, etc. they got their portfolio of brands. And then I was always curious, so maybe you could even just clarify for me. When these brands work with suppliers, whether it's Southern One and Spirits or Breakthrough Republic, whatever it is how do they work with is it sorry let me take a step back are brands exclusive per distributor or can many distributors carry the same brand i was always like curious about how that worked and then pricing wise right can i buy a certain vodka from southern wine spirits but also from republic and and then what differentiates that relationship or is it just the relationship that the distributor has with the supplier they get preferential pricing or something
1: so yeah it depends on state to state so each state has its own laws around that so for massachusetts for example like once you as a distributor give, uh, or once you as a supplier give a distributor a product, and it could just be like one line, let's say absolute. This is a, an example. Absolute as a brand is represented in two different distributors. But in order to move it from one distributor to another, you actually, they have rights to that, to that revenue essentially into perpetuity. It's a kind of a, it's an absolute nightmare. Like you cannot move it. And so in order to move it, You have to have your distributor, if you want to move it from one to another, trade them for another supplier's product and then get that supplier to, to of course, want that to happen as well. And that isn't the case in New York, but they do have exclusivity contracts in New York. So it's, it's a little bit more fluid. I know that Empire distributors used to represent Bacardi and it was, and then Bacardi moved over to Southern Wine and Spirits earlier this decade. I forget when, but it, yeah, that was a pretty big deal. And then Florida is like a little bit more loose as a whole and, and things can move a little bit more fluidly from what I remember versus all of those. So it, it really depends and it's wildly dynamic.
0: Yeah. Okay, wow. I'm glad I'm asking you because I've always been curious about these things. But like you said, it's quite complex. And I forgot about that too. You're looking at it per state. And another quick question, this is for my own curiosity, and hopefully for our listeners as well. But can a distributor uh, work with more than one producer? Or is it exclusivity? If I work with Bacardi, I'm with Bacardi? Or can I have Bacardi products and Diageo products and I don't know, Beam Suntory products or whatever it is?
1: Yeah, no, there's no regulation there. Yeah, they they can have in that sort of Loosely referencing to Southern Wine and Spirits is that, although they are an incredible company, for sure, um, there's no doubt about it. Once they start becoming, have such a large book, some of these smaller suppliers become less of a priority. And there's only so much bandwidth on any back bar that they're going to get. That's why Southern Wine and Spirits will sometimes like actually break up. So they have the, the fine wine division in New York called Lobber. And that doesn't even go by Southern Wine and Spirits. It goes by Lobber. So the wine spirits does the fulfillment of it, but they have different reps, they have different conversations, and they represent themselves very independently for the most part in representing this like fine wine portfolio. Yeah. They their goal as a distributor is to soak up as many suppliers as possible because then you're just you have like any store or retailer or restaurant, bar, club, hotel like has to order from.
0: Which makes a ton of sense. So at this point, you're racking up a bunch of experience, right? Your you, you time at the wine group's finish, you're working at Southern Wine and Spirits, one of the biggest, if not the biggest distributor in the States. What's next? What's next? And, and why do you transition out of Southern Wine and Spirits? What did things look like for you? And where were you at in terms of your career to be like, okay, I want something... Different? Because I think a lot of people, just to paint the picture, I think a lot of listeners you know, who are in the beverage space, whether it's distributors or actual producers or brand ambassadors, sometimes may be scared to move from one career to another. And, and one thing that I admire about you is that I can see that transition of growth going from one and learning and going to the next. So I'd love to hear maybe the reasoning behind your transition. You were at Southern Wine in Spirits. What was next for you?
1: Yeah, I felt like I really had to move on. I was speaking with actually a lot of my mentors at Southern. Billy Regan, Joseph Eager, and they were referencing how I was one of a number of guys in line that were very suited to take the next district manager role, and I really felt that I needed to get off of the street, mostly because like long term, it's a tough job, and it, and you start making really good money, and it's hard to walk away from. This is like the proverbial golden handcuffs, right? You like end up in this role, you cultivate your territory, you develop all these relationships. And then it's really hard to walk away if you want to, depending on what career path you want, because you start making very good money. And, and I just knew for me long-term, I didn't want to be a salesman forever. There's some people that are still friends of mine that are there and absolutely murder it, And I, I look back and wonder if I made the right decision. Those guys are they've got great lives man and and they just told me like realistically there's a lot of people with more experience that have been here longer that have been waiting in line that we need to hire as just managers i wasn't going to make that transition anytime soon i was hungry and so i took a role at team enterprises to work on the bacardi portfolio up in boston and that kind of got me out of new york and I, i felt also it was important for me to diversify the locations in which i worked in so i understood the distributor footprint and also had like relationships all over the, the country, which is why I've gone from like New York to Boston to, to California.
0: Okay. That's really cool. So what was the biggest shift going from a, a distributor, right? You were at, at Southern Wine and Spirits and then going to team and, and specifically working on the Bacardi portfolio. So now you're going from a distributor to the producer side. So what was the biggest shift working for a producer versus the actual distributor?
1: I would say the biggest shift was for one, like learning the agency model. I got to work alongside John Cicero, who certainly had been there for a while and was, and my cousin Ashley Cesario was actually in the role before me. Even my cousin Teresa Cesario had been at Bacardi at the same time in Chicago. So all of them like really helped me navigate in like, the day to day, like what's happening. It's a pretty incestuous little scenario, right?
0: Yeah. Plus, you said you had your uncles in the business too, right? Yeah. So, so I yeah. guess it's, it's amazing. very
1: fortunate to be recruited into Captain and had a lot of family to lean on this path but the biggest challenge was to be relevant to the distributor the distributor like we were mentioning earlier like their whole business model is to have as many suppliers as possible so they have the biggest book possible so they're relevant to as many retailers and outlets as possible and so to be relevant you need to go back to i had to go back to my roots of what i was doing at the wine group cultivate relationships directly with retailers and restaurants, bars, clubs, like really mine was on premise. So I was going to the nicest restaurants, bars, clubs, hotels and making sure that I was adding value to them, to their current program, whether it made sense or not from a fiscal sense. And then I would turn around and say like to the distributor rep on the ground that was managing the relationship, like, hey, I just added a new cocktail on. Do you mind like bringing me for right along as you can see like i add value like i know what i'm talking about now that i know these the storyline and and i've got an expense account that can support pull through at your accounts can we work together so really it's, it's starting again from nothing especially in a new city a little bit adding value everywhere you go and then building some momentum in the relationships that you're cultivating
0: I've always been curious about that. Maybe you can paint the image for me and I apologize, but I'm a curious person. I I love to learn. So from the distributor point of view, I think it's obvious or at least more obvious for our listeners of how it works and you're pushing product and building these relationships and on-premise, off-premise, that kind of stuff. When it comes to the actual producers, in this case, let's say you're working on the Bacardi portfolio, how does that relationship work? So you're still cultivating relationships. You're still talking about the different brands you carry and, and whatnot. But ultimately, I guess the part, the link that's missing in my head is how do you work directly with, let's say the restaurant or bar, but then it has to go to the, the distributor. So do you have to have both relationships? Like how does that, I guess, triangle work?
1: Yeah. You have to have both relationships and generally as a supplier, your geographic relationship spans at least four or five distributor salespeople and you've got to navigate, it's interesting because like sometimes you'll sell in stuff that the distributor is not happy about because you're taking actually and bumping off a supplier that they already represent. So you need to really know what their book is so that you're not like upsetting some business that they need because you're going to alienate them. They've got their own goals and quotas across their whole supplier. So you need to understand like what is in their book. And before you take something off out of a key account that does a lot of volume, you got to make sure that it's not something that is theirs. And if it is theirs, get their blessing a little bit overall, like. It's their problem, but you want to keep the relationship going. And and so you can't just go out there and switch business around it. Like they've got a goal in mind of how they're going to hit their numbers and how they make their money. So it is funky, like going into accounts and restaurants and like looking at what's behind the cocktail menu. And you've got to maintain both relationships. And sometimes those relationships aren't great. Like naturally, like any relationship, like on a large enough scale, there's going to be people that don't like working with each other. And you've just got to be... A good middleman like you're the nice guy that comes around adds value sits at the bar drinks brings people brings people out from the restaurant and, and hopefully mends relationships in some cases that aren't going well
0: yeah no that makes sense would you say it's harder and i guess it's it's subjective but from your point of view is it was it harder to work for the the, the producer side or for the distributor side
1: it depends on how introverted or extroverted you are you gotta be fairly extroverted no matter what these roles are like You just have to be, but you are, if you're like on the ground as a supplier directly sending into accounts, you've got to be a little bit more extroverted because you are not relevant unless you make yourself relevant. If you're a distributor rep, like they have to order from you, like that you are their account manager. And then the supplier has to work with you to put in at least orders when they get an order you can like rest on your laurels a little bit more because you are literally of the three tier system. You are the choke point. So you've got to be out there a lot as a supplier and do a lot of things that are engaging to make yourself relevant and worth picking up the phone for.
0: Yeah. Now that makes sense. And honestly, as you were saying it, it never hit me, but it like having to manage both relationships uh, as on the producer side, managing the distributor in the restaurant seems like it'd be, again, I'm just speaking from a third point of view here, but uh, it seems like it'd be more difficult to certain extent. I'm sure both come with challenges, but definitely I'm just thinking about managing the restaurant and the actual rep and it's a lot to handle. And at your time at Bacardi, what were some of the things that you've worked on, lessons learned at your time when working at Bacardi that you can share with our, our listeners in the industry?
1: Yeah, I, I think what makes Bacardi so great is that they they've got rich stories of their products. They're very good at storytelling, and they're really good at trade marketing, and that really comes from team enterprises and really like their vision of making sure that Bacardi's relevant with the bartenders behind the stick. And so I I think what was so great was being able to do the Bombay Sapphire and uh, Bacardi Legacy cocktail competitions. It was a reason for me when I was new in in boston to engage with people who wanted to win these competitions and a reason for them to talk to me so i got to meet people who i'm still friends with like brand juan who like went on to to win nearly like everything out there when it came to bombay sapphire and mccarty legacy and work with them on the cocktails and at least give feedback. The little that I knew about like an unsophisticated cocktail palette, I got to sit back and watch, but like also throw the events themselves and engage the Boston USBG on the event and what was like the opportunity at hand. And I I think for the first time too, like I realized like how fun a career in the spirits industry could be. It was just a lot of, it was, we were paid to go out there and like actually just make, Bartending and the supplier distributor relationship, like as easy as possible. And that was really the right.
0: goal. Cool. And for our listeners that don't know, can you just paint a quick image of what the Bombay campaign was?
1: Yeah, the Bombay Sapphire. Most I think it's a creative or innovative cocktail, and they would really cultivate people who were in this like artistry campaign, like how they could find really interesting ingredients to elevate you know, what they were putting out, and it was really somewhat near the beginning of the bigger cocktail movement. And I, I think like it challenged people to look outside of the box of what was typically easy to pour with gin. And I remember Rand won one with a yuzu cocktail. It's been, I don't know, like eight years since that competition. So I don't know the rest of the ingredients, but challenge people to tell their, their story, which was a really big part of of the the competition was like what was the relationship with spirits what was their story and like why the cocktail itself so it really perfected like a little bit of storytelling public speaking and also the build on the cocktail and, and of course how it all came together but it was engaging for people to have this cocktail competition in a lot of different interesting places like I held a oyster it was like a lobster and oyster fest like on one of the Boston Harbor Islands and that's where I got to have my cocktail competition. It didn't actually make a ton of sense getting ice out there and everything else was a total nightmare, but it was a blast. And I think everyone had a good time and a lot of people hadn't even been who lived in Boston hadn't been to one of the Boston Harbor Islands. Yeah, so it was like a good experience, again, like for people to just come together, have drinks and visit with people in the...
0: And it's funny how impactful campaigns like this can be, because just as a quick side story, one of our our first guests on the podcast was Kevin Damaris, and Kevin is a owner from Montreal, he's got a couple of venues like The Cold Room, El Piquenio Bar, etc. But when we were chatting on the podcast, his first story that of, of what kind of got him excited from starting off bartending for cash kind of thing on the side to really getting into it was actually the campaign you just spoke about and he said he ended up he was surprised because he was this new guy and he ended up winning this competition in Canada and then he got flown down to Vegas and he gave this whole story about how a $15 cocktail changed his life so it's funny how it's come full circle you mentioning this campaign and it just triggered that memory in my head of Kevin and how it literally changed his world and now he owns three four venues and it's his life but really cool
1: yeah Yeah, it's it's funny how
0: it came full circle
1: those campaigns I think are just so engaging because for one, like certainly like from a business perspective, it gets all those people to represent Bombay Sapphire on their menu. So there is like a a fiscal pull through It generates business for Bombay Sapphire, develops a relationship, an intimate relationship between the contestants and the gin itself, how to work with it, what are the botanical set in it. But then I think more than that, because how many bottles does that really move a Bombay Sapphire? I would like it, it realistically like a big retailer in one state like moves through more of that than all of Bombay Sapphire's cocktail competitions combined. But more than all of that, it does develop those relationships with the spirit and though like it elevates like it helps Bombay Sapphire and Bacardi family contribute to the movement of within the in the cocktail community. And I think that what they so authentically have done in a great way is like make sure that they are investing in the bartenders and their contribution to evolving like the on-premise engagement and consumers engagement like of what is relevant to drink right now and they are literally moving tastes they are taste makers so I, I think that it's great for them to invest in the community and i think it's a great way that they do it
0: so that makes a ton of sense so you end up leaving bacardi portfolio and going to absolute elix so what uh, incited that change or that transition
1: bacardi laid everyone so then inside of that change, they laid off 25% of their internal company and really gutted the advocacy team that was over at Team Enterprises. But yeah, it's brutal to have my career path change up like that. But I, I think it really happened for the better. I got to work with a lot of great people there and then got to reset over at, at another supplier a printer And work with the agency that they employ so it was great to make that transition and i had some family over there as well and so they were able to help me navigate what the transition might look like but they had not had anybody in the boston area and so it was able to take over representing new england for an up-and-coming spirit that that ricard was putting a lot of money and investment into which was elix It was a pretty similar role as Bacardi. Bacardi's got a monster portfolio, right? So they've got Oxley, Bombay Sapphire, and certainly Bombay Sapphire East. They've got just a huge portfolio, Dewars, Martini and Rossi, Grey Goose, the list goes on and on. And in, in this role, it was one expression. It was absolute elix, and that was it. They were... The driving force behind all the copper pineapples and the copper barware that people see fairly common behind back bars today. And I, I got to just really focus on vodka as a category, which is the largest category. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Gotcha. And would you say that it was easier or harder going from, I don't know how many brands with Bacardi to then one brand, obviously the big plus I can imagine is focus. But apart from that, what would you say were maybe some of the pros and cons?
1: A big pro like you said is focused, right? Like it's really easy to quantify your impact. Like you're doing one thing versus trying to talk about whiskey or rum or vodka or vermouth or yeah, the list goes on with Bacardi, which is again, great. But it, it, like the, the pro of Bacardi's portfolio is that you can be relevant in any place like you can be relevant anywhere
0: yeah okay so i can imagine that there's probably some pros and cons right mm-hmm. working on bacardi portfolio then transitioning to absolute elix and really focusing on one specific brand but i'd love to hear from your perspective maybe what some of those pros and cons were
1: certainly i think a pro in working with bacardi is that you're relevant to any outlet whatsoever you can come in talk about vodka you can look at holes what are they underrepresenting on the cocktail menu or at their store and really find a gap, whether it be rum or gin or vodka, or vermouth, like there's a reason to talk to you. And so it was easy to break into any account with Bacardi because you had to talk to me. Like you had to, there was something that you weren't doing that we had something in the portfolio for. On the other side of it, it lacked a lot of focus and it was difficult to move the needle on all fronts at all times. And so moving to Absolute Elix was like pretty easy, right? Like I'm now the absolute elix guy. That's all I do, which can get a little monotonous because you can only have so many martinis a day, especially with having an elevated vodka. Their whole focus was certainly the cleaner drinking cocktail menu, was really like where, or part of the menu is like where they wanted to be positioned. Yeah, it was a lot of martinis every single day or a lot of vespers. So it was good. It was good. What made it so fun too is that they really knew that they had to create innovative cocktail serves and punches to be fun. Their whole investment in creating the copper pineapples and those larger flamingos for punch serves and disco balls. like They made it relevant. In a sea of tall frosted bottles, they were able to cut through the noise pretty effectively.
0: It's definitely iconic. When I even think about going to events sometimes, Tales of the Cocktail comes to mind. But like you said, you see the copper right away, absolute elixir. Definitely from a branding perspective, uh, good job there. And any memorable campaigns that you worked on when you were at Absolute Elix? Anything that comes to mind in terms of, I guess, just memorable or effective, right? Like we gave examples of the campaign of Bombay back at Bacardi. Any parallels at Absolute?
1: Yeah, I, I think or two come to mind. We were able to do some data digging and recognize that anywhere that had a copper serve was doing around 11 times the, as an outlet that wasn't it wow. became really the imperative to make sure that we were getting in these interesting serves to key restaurants and bars. So, it was great to be able to have that resource of the copper pineapple or the disco ball or the flamingo and the list goes on. They're all, they're actually right, right behind me right now. So coincidentally, <laughs> here's an owl. <laughs> yeah,
0: can those right, Side right. note, can those be purchased online?
1: They can, like actually wildly profitable. Section of the business has been like to focus on, you know, direct to consumer. The big business right now, the suppliers are trying to really get into it, is DTC. Yeah, the copper serves are incredible. I've got pineapple cufflings that I've purchased since the left. Yeah, it's copper wallpaper right behind me, which I think was actually sold for a while. Yeah, they've done an incredible job taking a metal, copper, and making it just synonymous with absolute elix with the way that they actually do their. Distillation, rectifying, and I, I think on the other note of what was really memorable is that Absolute Elix, and I, I think that they don't do as well of a job talking about it, but they have a partnership with Water for People, and so for every bottle they contribute about the equivalent of about ten or twelve liters or fifteen liters of clean drinking water, and so really what they're doing is actually going into these places with a partnership for Water for People and actually developing wells that are self-sustaining in these rural areas in South America and around the world. I was able to actually bring that story to life a few times, but I I think it's one of these contributions that the spirits industry goes unnoticed for. And I think that it's great that they continue to do this. And in fact, like if you buy any of the stuff from the boutique, a, a portion of proceeds go to support new wells being developed. And I think the future of like our generation is all about sustainability and it's all about like environmental impact and and just being conscious about your footprint as a whole. And absolutely, Elixir is very conscious of that.
0: That's a great initiative, that's really cool. And and, and it's interesting, I'm curious to know from your perspective, like how are brands adapting or what have you seen? Because we just touched on it for a second and I thought it was quite cool. The D2C, right, the direct-to-consumer, as we all know, most people are staying at home these days. And so obviously, direct-to-consumer, is important. Have you seen any shifts in the industry just from your perspective like that brands have done to be top of mind for people at home?
1: Yeah, I think that the big push is elevated cocktails at home in these like boxes and box programs. But I think it's lazy and dumb. Like I just think it's lazy and dumb. I think that marketers right now are running out of ideas. It's been a hell of a year for them. They're at home. But no one, no one's making like five build cocktails at home with any volume. Like they're just not doing it. No one's doing right. that. I don't know the data. And I was actually talking to somebody yesterday about it, my cousin Teresa. And we were like, Hey, I would love to see the data of like how much Dick Hyper is selling or Vermouth is selling versus like the standard stuff at home, like vodka, right? How much that's right. grown throughout this year my guess is that it's not much like people are not building really dynamic cocktails at home they just won't like for one it's wildly expensive it has a tremendous amount of environmental impact because you're taking all that packaging and then shipping it there's like bottles upon bottles inside of that one box and then on top of it you've got to now make this thing and you're going to have one or two of them are are you really going to have a penicillin at home like maybe one you'll do it once but (laughs) I, i just think I think right. people have run out of ideas on how to remain relevant in this off-premise world that the general volume is coming out of. I think Absolute Elix is one of the few ways where they've developed like interesting cocktail servers, and they've offered those, and that's been able to like through the Elix boutique remain relevant.
0: That's a great answer. No, I think you nailed it because a lot more people are drinking at home and for obvious reasons, but what's interesting I think is that a lot of, like you said, companies, even just restaurants, bars, I know are trying this whole cocktail at home thing and it's it's a good step one, but like you said, it's how profitable can it really be and how many times will people actually do it? Maybe you do it once, but are you really gonna be buying it every week and doing it, right? And I think that's where I agree with you. Volume wise, I would question how profitable it really is. It's
1: not- there, there's no way that the customer acquisition costs, the initial customer acquisition costs actually pans out to be like, you've got to have a long tail customer in order for that to be profitable. And it's not because it costs too much to get right. there. And look at Blue right. Apron, look at these vo- like volume plays on the food side. Like You're just not seeing a lot of profitability there, even though there's stocks. Doing-
0: yeah. I wonder if there's any beverage brands really trying different uh, parallels. So what I'm thinking is, companies that have such a strong brand that all of a sudden they get into, I don't want to take Apple as an example, but let's say we take Apple, right? Okay. They're known for computers, but then they got into cell phones and then they got into headphones. So like really diversifying their product offering. I wonder if there's opportunities for brands that are known, like would someone sport a, a cool brand of clothing from or, or sneakers or whatever it is, but like having that logo of a certain beverage brand, it could be interesting if I haven't seen it personally, but I wonder if there's opportunities there.
1: There is. For example, Lagunitas has partnered and makes hop flavored cannabis drinks. They're okay. in their backyard. They're great. They're absolutely incredible drinks. I love them. I pick them up anytime I'm in California, which is all the time now and <laughs> with the exception of the holidays. Yeah, they're great. Just expanded into cannabis space. What's more iconic than like the absolute blue ribbon logo. Everyone has had a
0: path, right? It.
1: That's a great brand. There's brand yeah. affinity there. They may not, people have, may not have had it for a while, but there's a nostalgia in a brand like that. And they've expanded into cannabis, into the cannabis space. Our generation is drinking less alcohol. And I think focused more on health and wellness and balance than previous generations. And so I, I think it's important that beverage companies adjust. Look at Kettle and their low ABV botanical set. Like that was some, there was another couple brands that have certainly focused on low ABV and they weren't able to penetrate that market and in, in reach scale. But now low ABV spirit brands, it's essentially gin. It's everything but the juniper and what Kettle's put out and they've done incredibly well.
0: Uh, yeah, that's super interesting because we also had someone on, on the show who his whole company is cocktails in a can, but they're from LA and the, the whole concept is really like from farm to can. So all the ingredients are natural and th- their focus is instead of just the spirit being the focus, the spirit is super important, but it's every other ingredient. He was just telling us how it, it's. What he sees, and, and it's interesting, is the same way that, I guess, craft beer has really spiked in the last 5-10 years. He envisions this kind of same trajectory when it comes to maybe the spirit worlds, converting that into low ABV cocktails in a can. And that, that's his vision, which, which I can see. I can see how that will take off.
1: Yeah. R- RTDs make so much sense at home right now, right? Right. I mean, the RTDs right. are... are dominating and that's because again, people do not want to make five built cocktails at home. They're lazy. <laughs> Everyone's tired at the end of the day. They've yeah. inside their home all day. They're not gonna do it.
0: Yeah. No, yeah. I totally agree. And you touched on something which I think is an interesting point is you think about the alcohol world and you think about you know, prohibition back in the day and then so once it was things were legalized, how this whole kind of three tier system was built and now you got off premise and on premise. But what's interesting is taking that parallel because you touched on it on the cannabis space, where in many places it's still legal in a lot of places it's not anymore, and it's legalized. So I think it'd be super interesting to jump A little into the cannabis space because there's a few liquor brands getting to that space, but you are also somewhat of an expert because going from all those different uh, liquor companies, now you're working at uh, NorCal Cannabis and you're basically VP of Sales and Marketing. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on like where the cannabis space is going and maybe the parallel with the beverage space.
1: That's a lot. (laughs) Where is the cannabis space going? It's an exciting time in cannabis. I'm really happy that we actually haven't had federal legalization. I know a lot of people outside the industry might like think that's Absurd for me to say, but really, what it's allowed is a lot of boutique growers and a lot of infancy to be built like in respective states. And it'll be a hell of a mess to unwind all the respective laws that are everywhere across the, you know, the respective states, everywhere from blanket, everything's illegal to medical to recreational. But you got to think like if it went from zero to legal, federally legal, you would have RJ Reynolds, Constellation, Per you have all these dominating companies that would come in they would throw down farms and they would squash any small business from being able to be relevant. And, and so right now, like it's so great right now. It's so great because it's difficult to reach scale in some states, especially like Oklahoma, which is now recreational. And you have to grow within your own state. You can't cross state boundaries with any kind of biomass whatsoever. And if you're going to be in multiple states, you've got to have legal teams that understand each state's respective stuff and like have grows. And most states really encourage vertical Vertical alignment, so such as NorCal Cannabis, we grow several thousand pounds of indoor flour a month that we take down. We distribute that. We distribute other brands. We sell those to third-party retailers, and we have a number of retail stores ourselves. We develop brands ourselves, and then that allows us to touch every component of the industry as a whole. And I think a lot of brands, a lot of companies have. Been done a lot of fast-paced institutional learning by being able to touch so many components of what's working, what's not working, and the changing laws around it coming out of Sacramento and and California. So I really like that we have not been federally legal so far. It's allowed companies, and of course, there's a ton of money floating through. It's floating from the United States through Canada, back in the United States, into suppliers and distributors alike, but it's allowed the infancy of the growers to actually still exist. And there's still like a lot of mom and pop growers that are incredibly interesting in farm to table, like Rose Delights. that has Dominique Kren making their farm to table. as like they're amazing. If you're ever in California, you should absolutely buy them. Fantastic. So that kind of stuff just wouldn't happen if we went from zero to federally legal and we had 1,000-acre outdoor farms. It would just become another agricultural commodity.
0: First of all, that, that's an interesting angle because I, I never thought about that for me, not being in the industry. was ah, why, When are they just going to legalize it across the board? But that makes sense. I could definitely see the big players coming in and just, like you said, crushing everyone, which would be a lot less of an interesting space if, if that would happen. Really good point there. And I'm curious, just from my own knowledge, what is, It seems like there's still a bit of a tiered system, but unlike the beverage space, if I understand correctly, you could also distribute and you could also have retail shops, if I understand correctly. Is that the main difference, let's say, from a logistics standpoint?
1: Yeah, yeah. You can be in one or all. You could be a delivery service that also is a supplier, making your own oils and fulfilling it. So it's still ripe for experimentation and new brands coming and going and evolving and consumer tastes are currently evolving. The form factor that cannabis is typically associated with is smoking right? Like people buy flour, they roll it up, they light a joint, they burn through it. And then you had products packs come along and slow roast the herb, small brands like Meister and Octave that are coming out and that are building innovative ways to engage consumer cannabis. So I I think that what's going to be interesting for the transition is people are going to continue to like actually involve cannabis in their day-to-day life from sleep preventative to pain management or sleep encouraging to pain management to as a stimulant as a depressant however that they want to tailor it It, it's going to be interesting how people continue to provide things at scale like drinks with lagunitas and paps to edibles that are beyond just like brownies and cookies and gummies that people want to have on a routine basis that are low thc right most people don't want that 50 milligram gum. They just absolutely can't handle it, myself <laughs> included. So there's gotta be scale that allows people. And right now, beverage category represents like 1%. So there isn't a lot of scale there. So unless you're already a Lagunitas that has a glass supply chain, it doesn't make a lot of sense sure. to get into beverage.
0: Got you. And, and I'm curious to, to hear a bit about Do you see an opportunity there based on the numbers right now when it comes to the the long term i guess adoption right like you said people are either smoking it either eating it right or the the only other alternative is drinking it so in terms of drinking it do you see the adoption happening in the future do you see a setting where not only direct consumer but maybe in an actual Restaurant or bar, you you have that optionality, or do you think that's far out?
1: On-premise consumption lounges in California.
0: Okay, and I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and just to take a step back too, like there's a lot of other ways that you can enjoy cannabis: tinctures for sure, patches. People are taking dabs for concentrates. There's a lot of there's lubes out there. There's <laughs> cannabis in so, literally every everything that you can possibly imagine. Cannabis can come in. There's Cannabis is in it right now, especially mature states like California. So yeah, I think that on a long enough timeline, the cannabis lounges will continue to grow. We have some downtown San Francisco, which are great. There's a couple in Southern California Kaliba has one. Lowell represented one in LA, but it's going to be tough to have that at the bar. And I really, I don't know what the transition looks like. It's difficult to test people for THC potency, like in their person. And so I think it's going to be difficult for regulators to swallow the pill around the idea of allowing people to smoke and drink and get behind the wheel. And I think that on a long enough timeline, like, sure, it'll happen, but it'll be difficult even for the bar or the hotel or the restaurant to like, how do they manage the consumer's intake? Yeah.
0: Yeah, that is a tough one. And then I, I always like to get a, a bit of an idea of the person on the podcast and the products they're behind. So sometimes we have restaurateurs and they talk about their products. Sometimes we had, like I said, we had the cocktail in a can of Vervet and spoke about his products. So i love to hear just a bit about NorCal's products and maybe there's too many, but if you want to just, this is a chance to just share with our listeners some of your products and what you guys do. Sure.
1: Yeah. I'm very lucky to work with and work at one of the largest indoor growers in the state and because of that we have an incredible line from tops to bottoms to mids around what we represent our high-end line panacea is an incredible flower line that you're going to see potencies that are actually mind-boggling to most people 25 to 39 percent thc like big beautiful nugs everything's hand trimmed yeah and and those come in both bags and jars we've got an incredible line story behind that justin benson founded that as a concentrates brand years ago and has won many awards and, and now has like been in partnership with norcal cannabis to bring that product to life and, and really actually he sits at the kind of a, almost like a air traffic controller of all the flour that comes down and redirects what flour goes into what brand because the guy's just an absolute genius when it comes to you know the quality of flour and the associated brand it should be in and the next in line is a lifestyle brand called one life which is really around like having one life and being self-expressed and being creative and so we have our own team we have always an artist series going on we work with incredible street artists and that's brought to life by jeff rubin and that brand is really his baby the guy long time skater long deep relationships with places like thrasher again like really lucky to have a lot of authenticity in the company and so it's really cheap for us to show up and have real brands because we have real people <laughs> then paying some agency right. to come up with an idea. You should have a skate team. It's more like <laughs> Jeff Rubin, like how many people should I put on the skate team? And, and then from there, we've got a brand, which this is probably me in my roots back at the wine group that I just love. It's called Lolo and it's just, it's like the Kirkland of workhorse brand it's like the smalls and the mids and we've got ready to roll and we take really great indoor flour that might not look as pretty and provide it at incredible prices that people just absolutely cannot beat because we're at scale and it's great flour and if you don't if you want to just buy a bag and roll it up into a joint buy the ready to roll it's an incredibly reasonable price we put it in 21 gram bags and, ate, and you can't eat it especially with all the keef that's in there it's a, it's a great joint that you're about to roll at it. A really great price. I mean, that comes in pre rolls as well, and some concentrates are coming down the pike. And then we've got an an outdoor brand, Occidental Hills, which is Jigger Patel, our CEO. He grew up in Occidental Hills. And again, like we've got like authenticity for days, like Jigger and Sharif, Sharif's our head cultivator. They were growing and selling weed as far back as 13. They're just the they are the ogs man they are the ogs like speak the same language and slinging weed forever and uh, yeah the outdoor brand we get to lean on some incredible suppliers for and work with great farmers that that were able to bring their brands and their biomass to the masses which i love like the cultivation story there and going back to the agrarian roots and hands in soil and like outdoor farming yeah that's that's where the the romance yeah,
0: yeah. So that's super interesting. And so from your point of view, what are some kind of lessons that you were able to take, right? You're a you know veteran in the beverage space for the longest time from we, we touched upon almost some of the biggest companies from Southern to Bacardi to Absolute Elix Pernod Ricard, you, you name it. So you know, you're quite the veteran there. So when you transition to the cannabis space, what were some things you were able to take with you?
1: I think what to, what I took with me is understanding scale. And the distributor supplier relationship and best practices. And I, I think what I didn't take with me is expectation of how it's supposed to go. Mm-hmm. It was really difficult. I think for a lot of people to make this transition that as people move, and there is this like bit of a migration from wine and spirits into cannabis right now, especially in California. But a lot of people struggle with it because they have an idea of how it works in wine and spirits and it should work like that cannabis and like cannabis has its own culture, man. Like it, it has its own language. Like when I first got into cannabis, people were still refusing to use their last names. This, <laughs> they didn't provide their last names. It was still like everyone, everyone had any historical experience was a bit of a criminal as far as the that, that black market mentality is gonna be in the DNA of this industry for years to come. And, but I understood how things work at scale and SOPs and relationships. And I, I just tried to stay as, as humble as possible and listen and learn and be on the street as much as I could to like make the transition work for the team that I was managing and mm-hmm. for myself. And
0: what was I guess the reason that kind of made you transition from, from beverage to cannabis in the first place?
1: I made the transition because I saw for me like the writing on the wall the difficulty that it would take for me to move in the career trajectory that I want. I really had okay. my mindset on a couple certain roles that like were inspiring to me. I wanted to build brands and I didn't want to take another 10 to 15 years to get there. I wanted to play around with being able to build brands earlier in my career and wine and spirits at like the big 10 or big five suppliers, it was really going to take another decade plus. And I'm impatient. And I saw all the opportunity and instability in cannabis to be able to come in and add a lot of value from what I knew historically, and then play with building brands, building relationships in in this like budding market. And I just didn't want to slave away behind a computer taking chain jobs for a couple years at, at some of the bigger suppliers and then have to slowly work my way up into brand manager on the marketing side. I wanted to do both, and right. cannabis really at this time, still now, allows people to to get in. I think if they work hard, get there pretty right. quickly.
0: And so that's awesome. And so any advice out there to our listeners who are maybe in the wine and spirits world and interested in getting into the cannabis world, like any uh, pointers to them?
1: Yeah, I would say like it's a humbling experience. The, the industry will welcome you with open arms. But you've you've got to make the investment right like you didn't come into not knowing wine and spirits and not pick up some books you had to go out there and learn you had to go visit some bars and meet some people and if you're going to actually make that transition like you have to make that transition you have to make that investment people will sniff out just like they do in wine and spirits if you know what you're talking about or not they just do like authenticity is very transparent people got a feeler for that so if you're going to go into cannabis you got to actually be able to talk about cannabis and actually be interested if, you, if it's a cash grab exclusively like people are not going to wanna to work with you and you're going to have to move around a lot as you like pick up experience and it's going to be hard so i encourage people to do it i think it's an incredible industry i love it i i get excited about it it's like continuing to evolve every three to six months man it's a totally different industry but You cannot come in saying I know how this is going to work. Like you, like coming in thinking that you're going to fix this industry because you're not going to do that. Because I put it at the hard way. Yeah. And it's agriculture again, too. If you're coming from a distillery, agricultural like breakdown is a little bit more manageable. Yeah. Find some intimacy like with the plant itself know about the cannabinoids, learn about your terpenes, go out there, pick up some books and be engaged.
0: I didn't even know that term. That's a cool term, <laughs> but tender. That makes a ton of sense. And, and any, look, there's a wealth of knowledge that I think people can learn from, like you said, books to online to just finding mentors to companies. But do you have any books or resources that you recommend that have helped you?
1: That's Leafly it is an online resource that also has a book. That's incredible. I would start there okay. and then it'll really reach out. I would say there's a few like Turbine specific books. forgetting the name of it, but there is one that has its own like terpene institute and it's absolutely fantastic. It has this like wheat engaging wheel that you can play around with to get an understanding of all the different form factors of cannabis and then like the terpenes themselves and how they react to you. Cannabis is way more difficult to anticipate its impact on your body because your endocannabinoid receptors are different from other people's and the way that your terpene profiles of flower change from different genotypes and phenotypes, it's way more complex than just if I have a couple glasses of wine and like a red wine, I'm going to feel sleepy. Like it just doesn't translate <laughs> like that. If you're going to be out there, maybe cut your teeth on a couple of attending jobs just to get an understanding of like how the recommendations are and get some free samples from suppliers and pick up some books. Leafly is a really great place to start.
0: That's amazing. That's awesome advice. And so one of the ways we, we kind of love to wrap up the, uh, the podcast is with a segment called Last Day on Earth. Usually, the Last Day on Earth, we just ask, what would be your go-to drink and go-to meal? But I guess with you, I'll also ask what would be your go-to bud, so to speak. Yeah, Yeah, That's the word I'm looking for.
1: Great question. So I guess to fit in with the other segments, I'll say I'm definitely uh, a nostalgic guy. I would have to go with my mom's cooking for probably some bolognese and some red wine, probably a super Tuscan or an older Spanish Rioja, get some leather tobacco notes. And then what would I... I'm a sativa guy, right? I like my stimulants. I would definitely probably go... Let's go all the way up. Let's go Jack Herrera. I'll go through the moon. I'm not going to be here <laughs> tomorrow. So I'll just get really Why paranoid not. and watch the world <laughs> end. In my moon.
0: That's an awesome answer. Drew, honestly, so much insight. It's great to chat with you. It's great to have you on the show. Just from your years of beverage experience in the wine and spirits world to transitioning to cannabis. A lot of great insights. So I just want to thank you for being on the this episode of Whisking It All.
1: I appreciate it, Angelo. Thank you very much, man, for having me. Hope I was helpful.
0: Absolutely. Have a good one.